Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, please be seated, <clears throat> and we are going to finish our study of Ruth this morning, uh, chapter 4, and so if you have your Bible with you, it's, uh, it's towards the beginning anyway, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and we are in chapter 4. <clears throat> so let me give you a really brief, super brief recap of the things we've talked about over the course of the last few weeks. Our narrative, our story here begins with a guy named Elimelech who took, uh, who took his wife Naomi and his sons Malon and Kilion into a land where they weren't supposed to go. He ran away from a famine uh, and, uh, and went into, into Moab, which is specifically told in the scripture for the Israelite people not to go there and not to unite with their people, but he did anyway. He goes down there. That ultimately ends with his sons taking wives, but his sons dying and Elimelech dying, leaving his wife Naomi in the end only with a Moabite daughter-in-law left as her company. And they end up coming back. Ruth has has this, um, this uh, conversion moment where she gives her life over to the God of Israel and pledges her life to Naomi and Naomi's people and God's people in Israel. They end up coming back into Israel, and, uh, and Ruth is working in the fields, just gathering up the crumbs, gleaning what is left over after the harvest, and she finds favor with someone named Boaz, which we find is an amazing guy, this guy Boaz. Um, and that we find the hand of God is really sovereign, sovereignly acting in all of this as well. So she's found favor with Boaz. And last week, we learned that Boaz is what is called a kinsman redeemer. And the kinsman redeemer is the one who, when, when someone in the, in the tribe, when their land has to be sold outside of the tribe, can buy it back, also has the duty to, uh, to when someone in the tribe, when, uh, when the husband dies and the wife then needs to be cared for, has the, the biblical duty, is commanded uh, to, to marry that, uh, his brother's spouse and make sure she's cared for as well and carry on the name of the person who died as well. And so Boaz then is in the position to be able to bring Ruth out of this place of loneliness and poverty and shame that she's in and restore her into a glorious place among God's people. But there was a twist at the end of last week because there was a relative that was one step closer than Boaz. And Boaz said this weird thing when Ruth came came to him and said, hey, you're my kinsman redeemer, redeem me. And he said, well, there's somebody that's a little closer. If he's going to do it, let him do it. And then we were like, that sounds really cold because we were actually getting really excited about Boaz and Ruth being together and that's not romantic in the least little bit and what's happening here. But we're going to find that Boaz is quite shrewd and, uh, in his dealings and that he is going to make sure that Ruth and Naomi are well cared for. So here we are in Ruth chapter 4. What is going to happen to Ruth and Naomi and Boaz 
here in this chapter. Okay, verse 1. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. <coughs> Excuse me. The gate is where the business of the city would take place. So business transactions and land transactions and places of issues of redemption like this as well would happen at the city gate with the city elders there and the people of importance and the business folks. And, and so he sat down there and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Now, if you've been here the last few weeks or followed along online or listened on, on the website or anything, you realize the author of Ruth here says this a number of different times. It just so happened that Ruth ended up in Boaz's field. It just so happened that Boaz came by that day. It just so happened that he noticed her. Um, and now, it just so happened that Boaz sat down at the city of gate, the city gate and this relative who's closer than him happens to come by. Or maybe God has something to do with all of this. Okay, so this, this person is walking by, and Boaz says, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. Come on, have a seat. We've got something that we need to talk about. And so he turned aside, and he sat down. Now, here's something that's important. We talked last week about this idea of the kinsman redeemer and that there was somebody that was closer than Boaz, but this person had not stepped up in his responsibilities. He's, he's commanded by God to care for these women, to make sure that the land and the, and the lineage all stay in the line of Elimelech and in the people of Israel, and he is not doing his job. He is letting these women starve. Uh, he is letting the legacy of his relative pass away. He's not doing what he's supposed to do. We've also talked a lot about how names are important in this book, how Boaz means quick and strong, how, how Naomi means sweet uh, and pleasant, and how she, when she's angry, she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter, right? And so names are important. So this is great because this guy here, they don't even name him, <laughs> right? And they're like, he doesn't even have a name. He is not doing what he needs to do in the eyes of the Lord. He is not taking care of the people he's supposed to take care of. He's not stepping up in godly character or in righteousness and holiness. And so they just call him the relative of whom Boaz had spoken. And throughout this entire chapter, they will never name him. I think it's an important point. Uh, sometimes the Bible says a lot by what it doesn't say. So <clears throat> he took Boaz, in verse 2, took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And so they sat down. So he's getting witnesses around. This is how you did business transactions and such as well. This, you know, the unnamed slacker was, was there. And he was like, okay, something big is happening here because we're getting witnesses around. Um, what's happening? So there's, there's accountability in witnesses, right? The, the deal that's about to be made, if it's broken, now has witnesses around to hold accountable. I wish we had time to go more into the idea of accountability today because, because there's nothing different about the need for this in Boaz's life or in the life of the Israelites. It's also needed in yours. Who are you accountable to? Who, who witnesses your deeds and will call you out on broken vows? You need people of accountability in your life. If that pricks a nerve. Let's talk about it later. I don't have time up here today, but think about it. Who are you accountable to? So here, Boaz has the elders sit down with him, and they sit down, and then he said to the Redeemer, verse 3, 
Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. Okay. Uh, everyone knew that Naomi was back. The scripture has already established that, that the city of Bethlehem was talking about this as well. It wasn't that big of a place. Um, And so people knew that Naomi was back and that that Ruth was with her. This would have been kind of the talk of the town for a while. And so the fact that this guy wasn't doing anything uh, was not that he hadn't heard about it. It was selective hearing, right? Plausible deniability. And so Boaz here is quite shrewd. He doesn't just point his finger in his face and say, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? He says, here in the presence of all these witnesses and in light of the commands of God that said that if you don't redeem, do your duty as a redeemer, that the widow of our relative can come and take your shoe off and spit you in the face, right? That's what we looked at last week. In light of all that, just hypothetically, in light of all of that, Just wanted to let you know that Naomi's back, because I guess you probably haven't heard. Everybody else, you probably haven't heard. And so so just want to let you know so that you can redeem this. So now the guy's thinking, up until this point, he's thinking, I I don't need another, I don't need a wife. I don't like, I don't need, I I just don't need all of this. But now there's land, Hmm. right? There's land. Maybe I could plant some more crops. I could expand my business empire a little bit here. I could, I could rent it out. He's starting to think from a profitability standpoint. And so he goes, yeah, I can do that. So watch. Boaz says, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that, I'm, that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Oh, Right? So he said, yeah, okay, there's land. I'll buy that. That's great. And then here's Boaz, the great negotiator, right? Says, okay. And the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. You're going to buy the land. You also get Ruth, and you are commanded by God to have children with her. So the guy says, then the Redeemer said, no-name guy, said, oh, well, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Again, what we're seeing here is this guy's thinking with his wallet, right? This guy is thinking about what is, what is best for prosperity? What is the best, what is the best for, my, for my inheritance, for my, for my, uh, the, 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 my business decisions, to what I'm going to pass down to my sons? He is not thinking about the holiness and righteous commands of God about how we care for other people. He is not concerned about Ruth and Naomi. He is only thinking about whether this is a good business opportunity or not. And friends, we can do the same thing. When we make decisions about what we're buying, what we are, what, where we are moving, what jobs we step into, where we put our kids in school, all of those kind of things, we can put first our own hope and our own control for our own flourishing and what makes sense financially and economically before we ask what is right and good and righteous in the eyes of the Lord. We've all done it. 
But stories like this are in the scripture for a reason, to show us that although it seems backwards in the way of the world, that our first decision-making lens, the first filter we run things through, is not, how does this affect me financially? It's, what is right in the eyes of God, and how do I love other people well in His name? And that might mean sacrifice to yourself. What Boaz is about to do here in redeeming this is going to cost him financially. It's going to be a sacrifice for him. He's already sacrificed a significant deal to help these women, and now this is going to significantly affect his future. But he does it because it's righteous in the eyes of God. And we see that God blesses his behavior and his actions and his heart significantly. So he actually finds the security and the hope and the love that he's been looking for by following the ways of God. And friends, this needs to be our lens for living life. It's why it's so important that we're in the word, that we are, that we're studying the scripture, that we're in prayer, that we're learning in community, that we go through catechesis, that we receive the sacraments, that we pray for the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives, because this is the lens through which we should live. What is right and good in the eyes of the Lord and to trust that his ways are best and that flourishing comes from following the ways of the Lord. And that when we follow our own ways and fall into and become subject to evil and death, that we, that we need a redeemer to bring us back and line us back up in the ways that are the flourishing and prosperous ways of God. That's so much of what the story is about. So this guy, not following a holy lens, says, I, I cannot take all these wives and women and sons and daughters, and I can't, so lest I impair my own inheritance. Just remember that phrase, and we're going to come back to that lest I impair my own inheritance. So he says, take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. This shrewd but righteous Boaz should be a witness for us in so many ways. Now, it says this. So we've gotten over that hump. Whew, we've gotten rid of that guy, right? And, uh, uh, and so now, now Boaz can start to take action, intentional action in doing the part of the Redeemer and redeeming these women and this land that's a part of this as well. So he says, so the author says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. I don't exactly know how this works if your shoes aren't the same size. Like, I don't know if you just walk home one-footed and people are like, Oh, good day in the market today. I don't know. I don't I don't, I don't know that, um, but it, it's, the Bible itself is explaining what's happening here. And so then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, so he, he drew off his sandal, and then he said to the elders and all the people, so this begins here, the wedding ceremony of Boaz and Ruth. And it's this public profession of not only his duty, this isn't just an action of duty. This is an action of love. And Boaz stands in front of all the people of influence at the gate, and it says specifically here, all the people. He, he proclaims to all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. 
Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So there's this public, just in the same way that when we have marriage ceremonies today, there's all these weird, all these strange like habits that we get into that people call traditions that have really only been around for the last couple of decades. But one of the reasons that we have all those groomsmen and bridesmaids and all this sort of thing, they were witnesses to the to the to the marriage. That's what that's why they were there. We've now dressed them up in funny colored dresses and things like that, and made them spend a ton of money on tuxedos and whatever else. And then we line them up by height, and I don't know. But, so, but it's all ceremonial now, but it used to be witnesses. That's what's happening here in, uh, in, uh, in this, this wedding ceremony. He's proclaimed that Ruth will be his bride. It's this great theme, and he goes through all of the things that he's doing. He's redeeming Elimelech and his sons. He's redeeming the land. He's redeeming Ruth. He's redeeming Naomi. He's proclaiming the good news of redemption. This, friends, is a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what I pray happens always here from this pulpit every Sunday in this church, is that we proclaim the good news of redemption. That just as Boaz prefigures Christ, that he is, that as, as Boaz is Ruth's redeemer, Jesus is our Boaz. And here, he's publicly <coughs> proclaiming the redemption of the people. This is the good news of Boaz and also the good news of Jesus. Think of the joy that must have been in Ruth upon hearing these proclamations. And I pray that as you hear the word of God, whether you belong to Christ now or will in the future, I pray that when you hear the proclamation of the good news up here, that it moves your soul in the same way that Ruth was moved by Boaz's love. Then it says in verse 11, all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. We're going to talk about that in a second too. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So what happens here is the people are celebrating this great news. Again, everybody knows what's going on except for the sandalless guy over here in the corner. Like everyone else knows the story. Um, and they're all rejoicing together. And this is a, this is a prayer and a proclamation. And the great thing about this prayer is that it recounts the history of Israel. They see the events that are happening in their daily life as a significant part of the overall story and working of God. And again, so should we. This isn't just a book that contains stories of things that happened a long time ago, but that our daily lives are a part of this grand story and this grand working of God. And so they tell some of the story here. They say, we're going to bless you, and we pray that uh, may the woman who's coming to your house be like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. So these are, these are wives of Jacob, Jacob who was later renamed Israel, and who bore him sons that would, that would eventually make the 12 tribes. 
then they say, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. We don't have time to go into that amazing story as well, but it was a story as another story in which Tamar's husband died, and then the person who was supposed to redeem her not only didn't do his duty, like sandalless guy over there, um, but not only didn't do his duty, but also abused her sexually. And, and eventually, she was released from that and healed from that and came together with Judah, and they had Perez, which is, which is one of the relatives of this particular clan and tribe that we're talking about in here. And so they are telling the story. Here's all the great things that God has done in the past. And may he continue to do those things in you now. Now, when they're praying for them, there's a lot of multiplication talk here, right? Like Rachel and Leah had a lot of kids, and they started Israel, and, and then there's Tamar and, and Judah who had Perez. And so there's a lot of baby talk here. Young Christians, have babies. Do it. Like we spend, we have become in our culture so concerned with the right timing and the right amount of everything. And is this, am I ready? Am I, go have babies. Like that's what you have been called to do. Make more Christians, populate the earth, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. You are called to this. And our problem is, is that even before the birth of our children, we try to take the sovereignty of God away and think that we are supposed to decide the exact moment that, any, that our children are born, and we know so that we can take care of them best, and we immediately remove that out of the sovereignty of God's hands, and then we spend the rest of our lives hovering over our children, thinking that if we don't do a good enough job parenting, that they're going to be messed up children. And then they become messed up children anyway, and then we live with the guilt of all of that, Right, Because we've removed all of this from the sovereignty of God. So here's my parenting advice for you. If you are, if you are young, married, of children-bearing age, have children and then relax in the sovereignty of God. Let the Creator create. Let the Sovereign King be sovereign. There is someone who loves your children more than you. And that's God Himself. Have babies and relax. They're going to be healthier for it too. So, verse 13, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. So they got married, they had sex, they had a baby. That's what it just said happened right there. Now, I think it's important to pause in this for a moment because friends, marriage is so important. It, there's this myth going around that marriage is sort of a, uh, an antiquated, meaningless ceremony created by mankind in that what is truly matters is just our heart and how we feel for each other. Um, in the, and so in the eyes of God, that's all great. No, 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 no. Marriage is extremely important. And it's honored throughout the scripture. Because there's, in marriage, there's a covenant. There's a covenant that is made where we make vows to each other. And those vows are not just empty tradition. Oh, wouldn't it be sweet if we say those in sickness and in health till death do us part because we all know that that's the romantic version of marriage. These are real vows. Like I am putting my, I'm giving my life to you. I'm going to give myself up for you. I'm going to, I'm going to do all in my power 
to serve you so you flourish. And then I'm going to wear a physical sign of the covenant on my finger so that I look at my hand and remember this covenant that I have made for the rest of my life. Like my hand is weird because I have this indention on this finger um, because somehow my ring got smaller um, as I've gotten older. And, um, um, and, but it is, a remi- it is a physical reminder of the fact that I carry my covenant with my wife everywhere that I go and that everyone can publicly see it. This is not just I belong to Karen, but that I have given my life to serve her. That's what happens in marriage. When you make those vows, those binding vows, that's what happens. So that's why the way that God has worked all of this out is you make that covenant of deep, self-sacrificing commitment. Then you get to have the physical sign of that covenant, which is the consummation of that marriage. That's how that works. Covenant, then consummation. You get married, then you have sex. That's how that is designed, by the will and the working of God. And then that leads to procreation if the Lord so wills and uh, and allows. But we've messed all this up, just like we're constantly trying trying to do things our own way. And so our culture right now is sex obsessed, but we don't even have a definition of what it is. Like on one hand, we say it's the thing that defines your identity. And on the other hand, we say it's no big deal, it's just something physical and you can do it whenever you want to. Like which is it? And so our kids are confused, our adults are confused. We, don't, we have no idea. Just sex is everywhere, but we have cheapened it and devalued it from what it is supposed to be. And so I'm calling us to reclaim a biblical understanding of what sex is, of what God has said that it is. That when we engage with another human being in that way, that it is not something that is just physical, but that the scripture says that we become one flesh. Something deeply spiritual happens and our souls intermingle with one another. And we do not want to go around mingling our souls with one another if we have not first made a covenant that says, my soul is dedicated to your flourishing and a commitment to you. And the same is the truth is true from the other side as well. Now, when you live under that safe covenant, then have sex. Great. Do it. God designed that. He made it. And if you're right now thinking, can he say this in church? Like, is that okay? And somebody's thinking, like, should my kid hear this? Listen, if your kid is old enough to be here in this room, they probably know more about it than you think they do. And it's about time they hear it from the Scripture and not just from everyone else. Okay? So, so listen, this isn't a moralistic theology where what I'm saying is, be good, don't have sex. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that there there are these mixed images where we either sort of go into the churchy world where we hear church is gross and nasty and bad. Don't do it until you find the person that you love. That makes no sense at all, right? Like, why would I do gross, nasty things with the person that I want to give my life to? That doesn't make any sense. Um, At the same time, we don't downplay it um, to be able to say that that it's nothing at all. What we want to redeem here is what we see in the example of Boaz and Ruth, where they have come to this place of companionship and this place of commitment. And in that place of companionship and commitment, then they get to celebrate that with consummation. And when we try to take and make rules about this that are different from the way that God has designed it, then then we don't get the beauty and the harmony and the safety that 
that God has designed, we get the brokenness that we see in the world now. We get pornography and prostitution. We get the sex trade. We get adultery. When we try to make up our own rules, and does, did any of the things that I just mentioned right there, you go, well, the Lord, the, the Lord and the world has been blessed by those things. Right? Sure, I'm glad we have pornography in the world. Sure, I'm glad there's a sex trade. No. Like all of us would end all of those things in a flash if we could. And they're the result of a misunderstanding of the fact that God made sex. He made it. And that he said it's good. Like it's praise Jesus. He designed it and said, do this. But do this and enjoy this in the safety and the commitment of the covenant of marriage. So I'll sum this up by saying this. Men, your body is not your own, it says in 1 Corinthians 7. Your body is not your own, it says. You do not have the right to a woman's body without commitment to her and to give yourself up, sacrifice yourself for her, it says in Ephesians 5, and any children that you may bear with her. You have no right to anyone else's body. You have no right to touch anyone else without that commitment. And if you won't make that commitment, then you can't have sex. You're not ready, and it's not righteous, and you will cause damage. Women, the Scripture tells you that your body's not your own either. Also, 1 Corinthians 7. And if you were like, whoo, we're off the hook. No, the Scripture is clear for both of us. Your body is not your own to simply give away for your own pleasure to anyone that you choose. That sex comes with responsibility for the person that you unite your your body with and for the children that may be a result. We have a responsibility that comes out of this because it's God's way of us participating with him in creating and recreating. And when we live into this, sex doesn't actually become worse or, or something that is taboo. It becomes something that we can joyfully talk about. That's what all these people, like the whole, the whole group of people were all out there going, go have babies, right? Like, like they weren't scared to talk about having sex. It wasn't a taboo thing because it was righteous and good within the covenant that was being made. And so friends, as the church, we need to redeem this. We need to redeem this. Men and women, make the covenant and then consummate all you want um, and thank the Lord for it, but it can't be backwards. You can't do it another way and say that it's okay or to think that it doesn't cause damage. Alan gave me good wisdom before I came up here to preach today. He said, remind them this, ladies, wait for a Boaz. Don't settle for a lazy ass or a cheap ass or a dumb ass. It's worth the wait because it's how God brings about flourishing. All right. Now, there's two things I want to say here just in in case this this conversation, um, there's two places I think where there there could be some discomfort in this discussion outside of the fact that we just talked about sex in church on Sunday and you're like, I wasn't expecting that. But there's two other other places I want to point out. One is uh, is that you may have sexual shame in your life. When we talk about this, um, we talk about God's design for, for, for uh, covenant and consummation. You might go, um, I, 
I, I've been a part of misshapen covenant and misshapen a consummation. I, I, I feel shame over the fact that this is not how I've lived this in my life. Remember, friends, for those of you who have that pit in your stomach, this is a story of redemption. That's what this whole story is about. It's all about redemption. It's all about what Paul says that Christ is making his church to present his church to himself as a pure and spotless bride. The forgiveness and the grace of Jesus is greater than your shame and can restore and redeem your past. That's what all of this is about. And so the shame that covers you in these moments when we talk about these things can be released by Jesus Christ. He doesn't point a bony finger at you and yell at you and wag his... But instead he says, come, let me renew you. Let me make you new. Let me lead you into flourishing. I think another place where there can be discomfort or sadness in the midst of what we're talking about here is, is, uh, is when we're talking about consummation and we're talking about having children, particularly this line in verse 13 where it says, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. That there are, I know, people in this room who this phrase is difficult for because you want to have children and you can't. And you've been struggling and I want to say to you as well, we struggle with you. And, and I don't know how to answer that question of where, where God is in that, except to say that this whole story is one where Naomi has looked and not understood where God has been in big parts of her life. But in the end, we see God's sovereignty and his redemption at work. I, I don't, I'm, all I can commit to you is that we will walk with you and that you don't have to be isolated in that and that God has not abandoned you in that. And maybe you are called to be a part of the redemptive work of redeeming another life and adoption. And we would love to walk with you in that as well. Such a, such a picture of the, the gospel of a child that is received by no merit of their own, but at great cost is brought into a family. So if you're in that place, we love you. And we'd love to walk with you with that and pray with you and weep with you and trust in the Lord's sovereignty with you as well. So let's keep going. Verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. They're speaking specifically to Naomi now. Like Ruth, Ruth's got the new husband, um, and they're married, and there's all this joy, and they prayed for their babies, and it's fantastic. And now they turn to Naomi and say, Blessed be God. They're worshiping God who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons and has given birth to him. Ruth is a Moabite. They're despised. They're separated from the people of God. And now the people of God are recognizing that through the redemptive work of God, that, that Ruth is, is greater to Naomi than seven providing sons. What an amazing picture of redemption. Then verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. What an amazing picture. Do you remember where we began? story with, with Naomi being dragged off to Moab by her numbskull of a husband and 
um, and her sons died and one of her daughter-in-laws leaves her and she's bitter and she's, she comes back weeping and saying, God has abandoned me and, uh, and, and call, changed my name to Mara because I'm bitter and, um, and she's, she is just, she is broken. But then we see that God has not abandoned her throughout this entire time. And this is so beautiful that, that the story begins to come to a conclusion here with Naomi in a rocking chair with a grandbaby. What a beautiful, intimate picture of how our God cares so deeply for his people and how wonderful and intimate his redemption can be. She was alone, had no hope, no future. She was sad and broke, and now she has a family and provision. She has been redeemed. Some would say that this story, this book, is named Ruth, but perhaps it should be named Naomi. Maybe this is a lot about Naomi's dealing with God and struggling with him through difficult parts of her life as well, and ultimately holding that grandbaby on her lap with her eyes closed. You know those sweet moments. If you have babies, you know what I mean. When, you, when, when you're sitting there and you're rocking with them and you're just thinking, this is good. What a beautiful moment here with Naomi. But there's one more major point in this story that we cannot miss, that we have to quickly go through. One that is actually the point of this whole thing, that the book really shouldn't be called Ruth and really shouldn't be called Naomi. The book should be called Ruth. Let me tell you why. Verse 17, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, this, this baby. You know, like you do. You just call the women of the neighborhood together and go, what should we name him? Okay. Um, and so they said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. Obed means worshiping. They named him worshiping. Names are important in this book, right? And we see that, that the result of the redemptive work of the people of God and God acting in his people leads to worship. And now here are some of the most important and amazing words of the book of Ruth. Now remember, as we go into this, remember this. These were nobodies, right? They were just run-of-the-mill people. God had no reason to favor them in any way. They didn't wake up thinking something extraordinary was going to happen that day. They were just ordinary people. Ruth despised Moabitess. Naomi, broken and sad. And it says something like this here in verse 17. They named him Ovid, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. That's right. The David. King David. The greatest king that Israel ever knew. The guy who killed Goliath. That guy. That Obed was the father of Jesse, was the father of King David. Now, it's kind of funny, thinking back to Sandalless guy, who we still have sitting over here in the corner, um, who's like, I can't redeem her lest I weaken my inheritance. Boaz did was right, what was right in the eyes of his God, and his inheritance is that his great-grandson would be king. Ah, the beauty of doing things God's way. Now, it gets even better, though, because it says this in verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Remember, we talked about that, Judah, Tamar, Perez. So it says, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And now I'm going to flip over into Matthew chapter 1, and it says this. 
Matthew chapter 1, begin, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab. This should sound familiar, right? We just read this at the end of Ruth. And Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And then he keeps going like that for nine more verses. And then in verse 15 he says this, And Eloid the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Not only was God concerned with the, detailed, the details of the lives of these nobodies, but that he used these nobodies in the righteous redeeming work of Boaz and the character of Ruth and the struggles of Naomi to eventually bear the Savior of the world. Not only was there redemption for Ruth and for Naomi, there's been redemption for all of us. And this is the true point of this entire book that Jesus comes from a lineage of redemption in order to bring about the work of redemption. If you do not yet belong to Jesus, come and find refuge under His wings. If you do belong to Jesus, rejoice in the safety in which you're in and proclaim that good news of redemption to the world. How much does our world need to hear this news of hope and future, and character, and love, and healing, and marriage, and that God has not abandoned them. We are Naomi, who struggles in our faith, and our circumstances dictate our relationship with God sometimes. We are Ruth, who have all been despised in various ways, and are wondering about our future. And just as Boaz redeemed Ruth, Jesus redeems us to bring us back when we were not a people to make us a people. That when we were lonely to put us in families. Then when we're full of shame to make us meek. Our God is a God of redemption. And so friends, I pray in this wonderful, amazing story of God's work in the life of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz that we will see our great compassionate Savior. If he spent so much time making this right for Naomi and Ruth, if, he, if this book takes so much time to tell so many of the details, how much is he looking deeply into the daily moments of your life right now? And that your life is not isolated and separated from him, but a part of his great story of redemption that one day will be brought to fruition or to consummation when the Lord returns and makes all things new. And your life is a significant part of that and the work that God is doing. May we be a people who are dependent upon the Redeemer. May we be a people who, who call out um, to Jesus for His saving grace. And may we be a people who live in that redemption and offer it to the world 
as well. Pray with me. Glorious Lord, we thank you for your work in the lives of these people, and we pray that that redemptive work would continue. We pray that even now you would reach into the hearts and minds of the people who are in this room or watching online, and that they would know your presence deeply, that they would become aware of the work that you're doing in them and around them, that they would identify with the great story of redemption and long to be an agent of your provision and your redemption to the world. Lord, may, may you be our Boaz, and may we be Boaz in the lives of others as you give us opportunity. And let us be confident that you are moving in greater ways than we could ever imagine as we trust in your sovereignty. And so we live as people of hope. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.